Hi everyone, welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. Today's podcast is slightly different because it's just me and not Karen. I had the opportunity to join a group of breastfeeding specialists and other stakeholders in Newfoundland for their annual breastfeeding conference in November of 2015. The conference started with a research day, which they conduct every few years. And in this podcast, I'm sharing conversations that I had with some of the researchers. I was super impressed with the hard work and dedication of Newfoundland's physicians and breastfeeding researchers. In addition, I want to thank them for their warm welcomes. I felt completely at home with the physicians and other staff, so much so that we left on our guards and talked politics, which of course included the controversial topic of Donald Trump. Anyway, I was sad to leave, despite their unfortunate weather circumstances, which included a bunch of snow when I arrived in the first week of November, which was then followed by a cold, icy sleet. And when the sun came out on the last day that I was there, there was a very harsh cold wind that went right through me. I know that you'll be impressed listening to some of Newfoundland's highly energetic, personable, and talented researchers who live and work on this beautiful but weather-challenged North Atlantic Canadian Island. Hey everyone, I'm here in Newfoundland at a very exciting research conference and I have with me currently Dr. Leanne Newhook who is going to talk to us about her research group that's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador. Hi Leanne. Hi Dr. Iglesh, thank you. Um, yeah. So, uh, so I'm a pediatrician here at the Janeway Children's Hospital, and I work with Memorial University, and I'm the co-chair of the baby-friendly uh, research working group, um, and uh, we ha- we're a group of, I guess, varied healthcare professionals and researchers um, who uh, started about five years ago, uh, and we wanted to look at uh, some of the reasons as to why the breastfeeding rates in Newfoundland and Labrador were so much lo- lower than the rest of Canada. And we've been doing various studies, including qualitative uh, and quantitative research. Uh, and also we have a very active social strategy and knowledge translation program uh, to help uh, transfer th- our research knowledge. Okay, so I'm going to start with a very basic question, and this is for those of us in the United States who oftentimes ask this, where is Newfoundland? So uh, Newfoundland and Labrador is the most easterly province in Canada. So Newfoundland itself is an island uh, where the oldest, uh, well St. John's is the capital, we're the oldest city in North America. Um, and the uh, Labrador region is actually a very large area that is part of mainland Canada. Um, so, yeah. And is the Labrador region mostly Inuits? Uh, so, Labrador is composed of a, a large part of the population is Aboriginal, and it consists of uh, individuals who are, who are Inuit, Innu, and Métis. Um, and then there's also a, a, a fair proportion are uh, Caucasian as well. So, can you tell me a little bit about some of the research that you're doing right now? Um, well, one of the main studies that we're doing is called the final study, Feeding Infants in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we have collected uh, a cohort of 1,400 women from across the entire province. Um, we recruited them in their third trimester of pregnancy, and we're following them forward uh, so that we 
collect information when before they have their baby, then usually within the first three months after they've had their baby, and then again at six to 12 months. And we're doing a longer study at the age of four years where, where we're going to look at some uh, longer-term health outcomes. And do you have some preliminary outcomes of that? Uh, we have... Uh, just recently recruited our sample size, which was 1,400. Uh, so we have done some initial research. Uh, one of the things that we focused on initially was what happens to women in hospital. Um, so uh, what are the experiences uh, and what are the predictors uh, for uh, whether they will success successfully breastfeed or not. And uh, have you come across any factors that are associated with breastfeeding or not breastfeeding? Uh, well, one of the uh, major findings is that uh, even of those women who plan to exclusively breastfeed uh, for the first six months, uh, a large proportion are actually getting supplemented in hospital, even though they're in only in hospital for a couple of days. And when we looked at the actual reasons for supplementation, for the most part, they were non-medical reasons, uh, things like, you know, the baby was fussy. So I think this has been a focus of this research um, to uh, work with the healthcare professionals who are providing the care on the wards. And so we've uh, gone back and talked to the nurses and physicians who work there and hopefully we'll, you know, change uh, some of the uh, behaviors that are going on so that only babies who really need to be supplemented will be supplemented. And I heard you say something very interesting about the fact that this information would actually help to educate families about what normally happens in those first couple of days with infant behavior. Um, yes, so I think if the mothers and the families are empowered with the information and have the education to begin with, they'll know what to expect and they'll know that, you know, it's normal for babies to be fussy in those first uh, few days. They cluster feed. So uh, also based on that, there's been a short YouTube video created, uh, which has uh, just been released to the conference today. It's really sweet and hopefully in the next couple of days it'll be uploaded onto YouTube so that the general public can look at it as well and it, it's just a 30-minute video which you know hones in on some of those key infant behaviors uh, things like needing to be skin to skin uh, the fact that they are fussy and you know like to feed a lot in those first few days and that mothers uh, do make enough milk for their babies uh, and they don't need any uh, other liquids uh, and that those things are key to improving uh, the success of breastfeeding. Right, so it's a really cute 30-second video with babies talking, telling moms what they know and what they want, right? Yes, that's right. And, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I guess people will have to judge for themselves. But I saw it for the first time uh, this morning, and, yeah, it made me laugh. <laughs> right, it was yeah. great. Will it be on the website for Newfoundland Breastfeeding? Uh, yes, and it should be shared. Uh, it will be shared as well through the Baby Friendly Facebook page. Excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to the rest of the conference. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. So now I'm talking to Nyla Ramji, who is a fourth-year OBGYN resident in, in Newfoundland. I just realized that I'm supposed to say Newfoundland as opposed to Newfoundland, which, oh, is, what most, <laughs> which is what most people in the United States say, I think. Well, we always say Newfoundland here. Oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. Well, did yeah. you know that it's Newfoundland? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that. <laughs> 
So, um, so Nyla, you're interested in the impact of uh, maternal obesity on breastfeeding, and I want to know why you're interested in this, because you are not obese. <laughs> well, you know, I came to Newfoundland for my residency. I'm not originally from here, and, you know... Where I'm, are you from? I'm from Montreal. And I, I learned while I was here, and I observed it while I was here, that obesity is a really big problem in Newfoundland, and in fact, it's the most obese province in Canada. Um, and so I was interested in learning more about some of the issues that we know of so many of the more obvious health issues that impact obese women. But like, like, let's talk about those. So those include, you know, a higher rate of diabetes, higher rate of high blood pressure, metabolic syndrome. Then um, there's the psych psychological impact with, you know, depression, anxiety, all those sorts of things. So, you know, there's a lot more illness in the obese population in general. And we know that, you know, for babies that they have you know if your mother is obese you're more likely to be obese and those sorts of things as well and and it's been shown in studies that breastfeeding can impact have an impact with that so if you're breastfed you're less likely to have all those things so you think oh my gosh this is the cure for the obese women uh, you know perpetuating this into their future generations yeah, absolutely yep. yep so that's why yeah so, um, so tell me about the design of your study. Uh, so the design is a retrospective cohort study, um, and it's looking uh, at uh, live singleton pregnancies in St. John's between 2002 and 2012, and uh, sorry, end of 2011. And um, basically, we were only able to obtain that data in a quick enough fashion to be able to just look at St. John's. It would have been nice to be able to look at other health authorities in the province. And so um, what are some of the things that you looked at that you knew were what fact, some factors that you knew are missing from other studies that you wanted to incorporate in your study? So some of the new variables that we wanted to look at and what we were able to capture is that in, the, in other studies they show that gestational diabetes and gestational hypertension affect breastfeeding in a negative fashion. And so we were wondering what about essential hypertension and you know pre-existing diabetes and what about if you had a general anesthesia? Aesthetic. And what about different types of labor? So these are sort of, and you know, if you've had a previous preterm birth, you know, if these other factors affect whether you're going to breastfeed. Right. So it looks like the outcomes that you um, are, have evaluated are whether or not moms are breastfeeding at the time of discharge or not breastfeeding at the time of discharge. Yes, exactly. And do you think that in the future that you would want to look at um, breastfeeding, like exclusivity, um, as when yes. they go home? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the other important breastfeeding outcomes include initiation, intention, exclusivity, and duration. Duration is the hardest variable to capture because it requires long-term study and follow-up. Um, but unfortunately for our study period, we weren't able to capture that data well enough. But in more recent years, they have been. So hopefully future studies can look at that in more depth. So if we're in an elevator and you tell me in, in the elevator ride what the outcome of your studies are, yeah. what, what would you say? I would say that um, obese women are much uh, less likely to breastfeed. That was the primary outcome. And uh, it's about the, you know, they're, they're about 10% less likely uh, are half as likely when you look at the adjusted odds ratios. Um, and so that's the main outcome of our study. 
Um, Any surprises? Uh, so other variables that we saw associated with breastfeeding, looking at our new variables that we identified, include that essential hypertension, so pre-existing high blood pressure, and also uh, exposure to general anesthetic actually negatively impact breastfeeding, and that hasn't really been examined in previous studies. And that's really interesting. And I also saw that you found that the uh, mothers whose babies went to the NICU did not have a lower rate of breastfeeding. In fact, it was higher. Uh, yes, it was, it was negligible. Yeah, like basically there was no difference in breastfeeding status, whether you went to the NICU or not. And we attribute that, that in our center, the NICU is very good about advocating for breastfeeding. So previous studies have shown a difference. And I think that this advocacy is sort of corrected for that difference. Nice. Well, thank you so much. And I hope that you continue to work on this, on this research. What do you think? Yes, sounds great. Looking forward to learning more about these other outcomes. And I'm so excited to have an OBGYN who's passionate about breastfeeding. Thank you. Thanks. So now I'm talking to Ashley Blagden, who's a pediatric resident, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her research regarding NICU, um, breastfeeding in the NICU, and breastfeeding rates, and how breastfeeding rates are documented in studies. So, let, so let's talk. Yeah, so okay, thanks, um, Dr. English. Um, yeah, so basically we wanted to look at um, how researchers in the NICU are defining and reporting their breastfeeding rates. Um, if you kind of look broadly at the literature, there is no one standard definition that we could find. Um, so we decided to do a formal lit search and uh, examine how researchers worldwide are t- choosing to define and express their breastfeeding rates. Um, So once we searched all the databases, we narrowed it down to 50 papers and there were um, a multitude of definitions. So some people would measure rates at initiation of feeds while some people looked at um, feeds at discharge. Uh, Some people looked at exclusive breastfeeding versus partial breastfeeding. Some people included donor milk. um, And so there was, you know, a wide variety of definitions used in the literature. And overall, this kind of leads to, um, it might lead to some inaccurate data, um, inadequate data when you're looking at improving breastfeeding rates in the NICU, um, as well as comparing to other institutions. Um, You might be misinformed or misled and think you're doing better or worse than you are doing. Right. So, um, So what do you think is the best way to document breastfeeding rates in the NICU after looking at all these papers? Yeah, so that's the, uh, I guess, the age-old question now. Um, It was kind of obvious that there is a reason people are doing it in all these different ways. Um, I think primarily it depends on, you know, your outcome measure, what what your goal is of your study. Uh, It's understandable that some people would limit their studies to very low birth weight infants or infants without comorbid illnesses. Um, However, for us in our NICU, we want to see how we're doing overall. We don't want to exclude um, ill babies or babies requiring support. So for us, we are going to, um, in our next phase, look at measuring it at different time points and seeing if there is a difference when you do that. So if you look at an initiation as well as different points up until discharge, if that changes the rates, um, it's understandable that discharge would be the most common. It's the most feasible, less time-consuming um, way to do it. Um, however, I think that question still remains to be determined. But the discharge rate, so my concern about discharge rate is that the reason to have a discharge rate is to see if that correlates with um, duration of breastfeeding. And just receiving human milk at that time 
is not necessarily going to be associated with that. It, it seems to me that actual breastfeeding, as opposed to breast milk feeding, would be important at the time of discharge. Yeah, no, that's um, that's absolutely right. So, um, kind of like we were saying earlier, babies admitted to the NICU might be there for weeks to months at a time, and if for two months of their stay they were receiving their mother's own milk and then for some reason, whether it was a supply issue or um, you know, a demand issue and they had to switch, they're, when they're leaving the NICU they're getting written down as um, formula fed and not breastfed, um, whereas we might have been successful for those two crucial months that they were there. So um, you know, there is that, that piece that discharge might not be reflective of how well we're actually doing in the NICU with our breastfeeding rates. So it seems that this is a good foundational um, uh, study in order to come up with some sort of recommendation as to what should be measured when you're trying to study a certain outcome. Would that make sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this speaks to a lot of research studies in terms of when you're looking at rates. Um, you have to be very cognizant of, of what that means to the particular researcher. Um, I think, again, it will depend on what your, your prime outcome target and measure will be um, for your study. But um, yeah, it, it's it, hopefully once we finish the next phase, we will have a more clear picture of where we should be going when we're defining and expressing our rates in the NICU. So what's your next phase? So we're actually going to do a retrospective chart review and look at um, the rates at initiation of feeds as well as pr at particular time points during their stay, whether that be two, four, six weeks or a month in, um, as well as at discharge, and then examine um, how the rates vary across those time points. Very interesting. So then about you, what year resident are you? So I'm a second year pediatric resident. Yeah, so two or four years here. Yeah. Oh, it's four years. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then do you need to do general care? And, and then if you want to specialize, you would do it after that? Or can you just go into a specialty? So, so I'm a peds resident, so pediatric. So that is kind of where you're, you're training to be, I guess, a general pediatrician. And then if you want to do a subspecialty, you would apply to a fellowship and then move on. So for me, um, I'm hoping to do neonatology. So I am hoping to go on and do a neonatal, neonatology fellowship. Great. Well, congratulations on your, on your work. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. So now I'm talking to Dr. Erin Smallwood, who's a family physician from Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, and she's going to tell us about a peer support project that she's been doing in her region. Hi. Hello. Yeah, so we, in 2013, actually developed a mother-to-mother -mother peer support program. Uh, we're called the Bay of Islands Organization for Breastfeeding Support. And if you're creative with those letters, it actually uh, creates the word boobs, which has been oh. really great to capture a lot of attention. I like that. So we, um, we based it on um, other programs that existed in other parts of Canada, particularly out of Ontario, but we were the first of its kind in our province. And essentially what we do is offer one-on-one, mother-to-mother peer support between uh, either women who intend to breastfeed or women who are just starting to breastfeed with mothers in the community who have had positive breastfeeding experiences. So we offer a two-half-day training session for moms in the community who have had a successful breastfeeding experience so that they are well-equipped to be able to provide support to mothers as they embark on their breastfeeding journey. So we offer support via text, email, or telephone. Um, we also offer a weekly breastfeeding group that happens within a family outreach resource center in our community. 
And that group is really participant driven. So we don't go with any specific agenda or topic, but we open it up to all breastfeeding moms and families for them to come and if they have issues that they want to discuss or specific topics, that's great. If they just want to network with other moms and let their older siblings play together, it's just an opportunity for moms who are breastfeeding to, to get together and share their stories. So it sounds a little bit like La Leche League. And how does it differ? It's interesting. I wasn't a part of the very initial um, conception, but I have learned since that it is very similar to the La Leche League concept. At the time, there was no La Leche League presence in Cornerbrook or in the Western region. There are chapters within the St. John's um, and Paradise area of Newfoundland, uh, which is on the East Coast, but nothing on the West Coast. So we actually um, had been awarded a provincial wellness grant, and so we were to create something new and different and not recreate uh, something that already existed. But it is essentially based on the mother-to-mother peer support. Um, up until this month, actually, we haven't had a lactation consultant on the West Coast. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so um, outside of our public health nurses, who have been fantastic, and some family doctors who've taken a special interest in breastfeeding, the support within the community and outside of the hospital has been really limited. And what we realized through focus groups that we did with um, people within our community is they attributed that mother-to-mother peer support to their um, success. So while they credited, you know, public health nurses and other health professionals with giving them support and education, the person that they felt allowed them to reach their, their breastfeeding goals and really get them through those challenging times was a fellow mom or a grandmother who had had experience and could speak to them on an equal level and just give that encouragement to you know persevere if they were having any challenges. Well you know over the years in my career a lot of what I've learned about breastfeeding comes from the um, exchange of information that my patients have had with other with peers and other women in the community. Absolutely and even as a physician myself most of my breastfeeding knowledge um, experience and and confidence even around breastfeeding stems more from my own experience as a breastfeeding mom than any of the medical knowledge or education that I got. So there's such power in that practical experience and being able to connect with people on an equal level and and sort of eliminate that hierarchical you know, level of top-down education or, um, you know, just the expert role and seeing everybody as their own experts in their own lives and their own experiences. And when you think about, at least for me, when I think about the things I said to families before I ever had kids, I cringe. Oh, absolutely. And if you could go back and kind of (laughs) reword things. um, And we're still learning, you know, we're learning all the time. And I've, um, I've now had been fortunate enough to breastfeed three children. And even my experience with all three of them has been has been different. (laughs) But having had that practical experience myself, I'm far better equipped to be able to at least provide support and education to moms and now point them in the right direction for any extra additional support that they might need. So we should start another podcast called What You Never Learned in Medical School. Absolutely, absolutely. And my husband's a physician as well, and he now is a far better breastfeeding advocate and supporter because of his role as a a breastfeeding dad, essentially. Fantastic. Well, congratulations on on, on your project. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Karen and I will be back soon with another Breastfeeding Medicine podcast. I hope you all have a marvelous, safe, Happy, healthy, and fun New Year's.